Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. On today's show, Tim Shorrock will pick apart U.S. relations with North Korea, and Vijay Prashad will make sense of the rights victory in India's election. First, North Korea, which has been much in the news. National Security Advisor and uber-hawk John Bolton would probably want to turn it into a smoking rune, but Trump blows hot and cold in the issue. What's it all mean? Here's Tim Shorrock with some answers. Tim, who's been on this show many times before, has written extensively on Korean affairs for The Nation and many other outlets. Tim Shorrock. Now we're hearing that uh, Trump and Bolton are somewhat split on Korean policy. It's really hard to figure out what the hell is going on anywhere. But uh, what do you make of this alleged split between Bolton and Trump? What do they want, either separately or together? There's a bit of a split, but at the same time, I think Trump is covering up the fact that they're basically in sync. And Trump has been following the Bolton line pretty closely since you know he came into position as national security advisor. In terms of North Korea, the very hard line that Bolton you know, has been promoting for some time came out when Trump met with Kim Jong-un in Hanoi for their second summit. And there was a lot of uh, optimism beforehand by people that were watching the situation closely and covering it very closely for the nation. You know, it seemed like they were moving toward some kind of interim agreement under which North Korea would give up part of its nuclear weapons system and the U.S. would perhaps drop some sanctions that have been imposed on them. And then uh, they might actually open up liaison offices in each other's capitals. And, you know, a deal like that looked like, you know, it was kind of coming to fruition. But then what happened was Trump demanded complete surrender of North Korea. Yesterday, the uh, State Department put out a statement clarifying that basically the U.S. now sees their entire WMD program, which of course includes you know chemical weapons and bioweapons, just like the U.S. has, but all of their WMD is you know violates uh, UN sanctions and must be eliminated. Under Trump, they've kind of you know expanded what they mean by denuclearization, and they've imposed a demand on, on North Korea, which is to them, to the North Korean side, you know looks like surrender. What they offered was they'll close a big chunk of their nuclear program, and they wanted the U.S. to seek the removal of sanctions that had been imposed by the U.N. since 2016, uh, which were the ones that really hit its population the hardest, you know, bans on oil and coal exports and things like that. From the outside, Bolton just looks like a warmongering maniac. Um, is there some kind of rationality behind what uh, he wants? And when we say Bolton, what, what are the forces you know around him and behind him? Well, you know, Bolton is part of this uh, neocon, anti-Iran, anti-DPRK coalition in Washington. It's actually pretty strong. Before he came into office as national security advisor, of course, he was saying, you know, the best solution to North Korea is to destroy North Korea. So he's always been for... You know, he's always been, a, you know, a war maniac. He's always been for, you know, military strikes to take out their whole program. So who are the people around him that you're, you're talking about? The people around him, it's, it's what's confusing is that, you know, there's a few people who've been with Trump all, all along. who are sort of behind the scenes people who work for the National Security Council. And they seem to be, you know, doing the most work on this. But Trump relies heavily on Bolton. Bolton is a supreme knife fighter. We all know, you know, from the past how he's been able to win all these inside fights in various administrations and come out on top. 
I think he actually eclipsed uh, Secretary of State Pompeo when he came in because Pompeo's representative, this, this guy named Stephen Bagan, who was uh, you know from Ford Motor Company, who was brought in to do a lot of the negotiations, lead the negotiations with North Korea. He gave a speech, you know, prior about a month before the meeting in Hanoi, where he laid out a kind of step-by-step process that this could happen and an agreement could happen. Steps on one side, like North Korea giving up certain parts of its nuclear industry, nuclear weapons industry, and then, you know, the U.S. lifting some sanctions, other moves like that until you could reach a final agreement and build trust and you could get, you know, move toward the kind of agreement they're talking about. But in Hanoi, it, there was a picture, a photograph taken of the first, you know, session. And this guy, Begin, was on the side of the table. He wasn't at the table. He was, you know, in a side chair, like a staffer. And the guy at the table was Bolton and Trump, of course. Uh, but that was pretty symbolic of what had happened. And clearly, Bolton and his hard line won out. Now, Trump's talking like as if there is this break. And when you know, Bolton said they had North Korea tested some short-range missiles recently, and uh Bolton said these violated the U.N. Security Council measures that were passed in 2017, 2018. And, you know, then Trump came out with his tweet saying he's okay with it. He trusts Kim. So in that way, it was kind of a break. But that's pretty typical of Trump. He disagreed with Mattis, his former secretary of defense, a bunch of times. And, of course, he totally trashed Tillerson, his first secretary of state. I mean, just humiliated the guy, right? I think because he ran on this sort of platform that he didn't want to start more foreign wars, he kind of wants to stick to that publicly and make it look like he's some kind of peacemaker or something to his followers, like he's not going to start new wars. But what they're actually pushing with North Korea is a very, very hard line. Well, yeah, Bolton's a pretty weird guy to have by your side if you want to be seen as a peacemaker. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's just, I mean, it's completely contradictory. I mean, he's the guy you want if you want to make war on every country that you dislike, which is what his dream has been for years. If Bolton had his way, we would be at war with Iran, with North Korea, probably bombing Syria, which, of course, we've done. He is a, a war maniac. I mean, that that's what his policy has been. He's not a negotiator. He's not a mediator at all. Now, is this like the continued life of the Project for a New American Century? Is this the same kind of thinking, this vision of U.S.'s imperial world master? I think it's pretty pretty close. The difference is the way Trump deals with and treats America's quote-unquote allies, such as South Korea, right? You have to pay more for your troops. You know, this is not a shared responsibility, you know, where you're just taking advantage of us, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, you know, as I've been, you know, reading the coverage today of his trip just now to Japan, I mean, it's actually quite alarming what he's doing with Japan. Trump and Abe Shinzo, the prime minister of Japan, you know, had an event on a Japanese aircraft carrier. It's the largest ship in the Japanese Navy. And they basically said they're they no longer have a bilateral military alliance, but they have a global military alliance. And Japan will participate with the U.S. in military actions, the Gulf and, you know, other parts of Asia, etc. And this has been a long-time dream of hardliners in the U.S., as well as the reactionaries who've been ruling Japan through the Liberal Democratic Party. This is actually quite alarming 
and has been quite alarming to other countries in the region, like China, and also, you know, South Korea and North Korea. You know, this kind of alliance where they're, they're collaborating in military opera, might collaborate in military operations overseas. So actually, Trump himself is following a very, very militaristic approach to U.S. policy in Asia. Now, Trump, though, it seems like, uh, you know, he thought that overthrowing Maduro is going to be like a walk in the park. He just waves his hand and, and people cower and surrender. But, you know, of course, the world doesn't work that way. So, I mean, is he in it for the long haul? I mean, is, is, uh, or is he just uh, gesturing grandly? Does it make any sense? What's funny about Venezuela, I mean, it's tragic and funny at the same time. I mean, when it, they thought there was going to be a coup and it was always going to go great for the U.S. In, you know, by putting this Guaido guy in power, right? And then the whole thing fell apart. There was no support in the military for Guaido and, and, and it collapsed. And then he, Trump got all pissed off and said, oh, well, I, actually, we don't want to have a war in Venezuela. And, you know, we, you know, he actually is a tough guy, Maduro. And he's trying to back, backtrack. So he kind of like, then he tries to explain his shifted policy. You know, it's impossible to know, you know, what's in his, his mind. But I have to say, in, in terms of North Korea and Kim Jong-un and, and dealing with you know, the U.S.-North Korea uh, conflict, this war they've been at for pretty much 70 years, it was a huge step for him to actually meet personally with Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. That shifted the whole way of looking at it for North Korea. It was a very important step. And of course, you know, liberals here like Rachel Maddow and people in Congress, you know, were appalled and this never, should never happen and never happened before. Therefore, it shouldn't happen now. But that was a big step. And, you know, they've come pretty far in negotiations. And uh, so, you know, I have to give him credit for that. But somehow he thinks that, you know, his personal touch with Kim is going to transform everything into gold, right? And now he's, he talks like, oh, North Korea has this unlimited economic policy possibilities and, and you know it's basically a real real estate developers dream you know, it's which, all waterfront property <laughs> yeah yeah waterfront property apparently there are some pretty nice beaches there but yeah and there's a lot of coast just like there is in south korea i mean it's you know it's a peninsula right he has these like wild crazy ideas and he talks about north korea like they're gonna all they got to do is you know give this up and they're gonna be this shining economic example and et cetera et cetera and it doesn't really take into account at all North Korea's relations with South Korea, how South Korea has been trying to use economic projects to defuse the tensions. So it's really this totally you know, unrealistic you know, vision he imposes on Korea and other hotspots, so to speak, to make people sort of try to understand what his policy is. But it, you know, when you really break it down, it's completely confusing and contradictory. I'm speaking with the journalist, Tim Shurok. Whenever you're on, uh, we have to bring this up, but uh, I, I think given you know, the, the, the nature of the dominant discourse, you can't say it often enough. North Korea has really good reason to be terrified of the U.S., right? Absolutely. Going back to the Korean War, when they were completely destroyed uh, by U.S. bombing, Curtis LeMay's bombers that destroyed much of Japan, also completely destroyed North Korea. A lot of South Korea was laid waste as well. And... The U.S. has threatened them with nuclear weapons, you know, numerous times during the Korean War. After the Korean War, you know, when there's been crises, like, for example, during Richard Nixon's presidency, when talk about tensions. I mean, North Korea, you know, captured a, well, this is under Johnson. They captured the Pueblo, right, this U.S. spy ship. And then uh, you know, 
during Nixon, they, they actually shot down a U.S. spy plane where uh, I forget how many people, about two dozen American airmen were, were killed in that. Uh, and then there was this incident where, you know, there was you know, Americans were killed in a tree cutting incident uh, on the in the DMZ. Uh, and the, and all those crises, the U.S. would fly B-52s right toward North Korea on mock bombing runs. And then they would turn back to the last moment before crossing in North Korea. So, you know, it's like a physical threat up there in the sky. And they've also said it. So and then there's these statements by people like Trump himself. You know, we will completely destroy North Korea if you don't change your policy. And then Bolton's threats and these American militarists, their threats against North Korea for years. So, yeah, their concern is not just there's a lot of talk. And, you know, you, you read David Sanger, the New York Times, right, the saint of covering, you know, nuclear nuclear issues. He's like, well, they never quite uh, worked out the definition of denuclearization. Uh, actually, that's not true. The, for the North Koreans, and I've written about this for the nation, you know, from, from talking to people who've been engaged with the negotiators, the North Korea sees denuclearization as also removing the nuclear threat to themselves because, you know, the U.S. has a fairly large nuclear arsenal on ships and planes all around the Korean peninsula. They're not in South Korea anymore like they used to be, but now they're stationed in, you know, ships in Japan and Yokosuka and Air Force bombers in the region as well as Guam. They want to remove that nuclear threat as well. It's not, they don't see it as just a unilateral, they're just going to give up their weapons and then then they'll get friendship from the United States. They want to eliminate the possibility that they're going to be attacked uh, or, you know, some kind of regime change operation. And that, that that's, that's their concern, and they have good reason to be concerned about that. I think the U.S. policy, not just Trump, but going back across many administrations, is quite consistent in both the case of Iran and North Korea. They just don't want other countries to have nuclear weapons. The, they want the nuclear threat to go any, in only one direction. Right. And, and, and countries that develop them that are our allies, like Israel, is fine, right? We just don't, we just don't talk about it, even though it might completely you know, disrupt the strategic uh, situation in that part of the world. As long as, it's, as, long as there are nukes, you know, our, our guys, it's fine. But the thing is, North Korea's nuclear capability, I mean, I, I guess what makes Trump happy about his negotiations now, and he keeps saying this, that there's been no, you know, long-range missile tests, which is true, and they haven't tested any nuclear weapons since the Obama administration. But they, you know, they did stop their nuclear and missile program short of having the, the ability. They never got a warhead on a missile, put it through the atmosphere. They stopped doing that at the end of 2017. And they said they've completed their nuclear program uh, their nuclear force, as Kim Jong-un called it, and wanted to work, move on toward you know, economic development, not just military development. That's still the status quo. I mean, they have not tested those kind of long-range missiles, and they were willing to give up you know, a big chunk of their nuclear production, you know, plutonium and, and uranium enrichment uh, facilities in, in, in the last deal when they talked it in Hanoi. Uh, but of course, they're not—they're not willing to, you know, completely surrender and just give it all up before having any changes in the sanction regime. If uh, South Korea didn't have to worry about the United States uh, meddling in its affairs, what kind of relation would uh, South Korea like to have with its northern neighbor? A lot of people, of course, you know, the, the dream and the, the dream, long-range dream, is 
unification in so, of some sort, right? Like maybe, you know, two separate states involved in a confederation or something like that. But, you know, they, they were moving, you know, after, uh, important, you know, in, in looking back over the last two years, the, the peace talks began after North and South Korea, Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in met in April of 2018 and made a sweeping declaration you know, to break down the animosity and end the state of war. And after they met again in September at, a, at a, uh, another summit in Pyongyang, you know, they had this military-to-military agreement, uh, which they moved on to remove a lot of the obstacles to, well, the, you know, the danger points of, that could trigger a war in the DMZ, like they removed lots of landmines, they took down, you know, many, many guard posts. Uh, people stopped carrying weapons in that area. They've also been trying to move economic projects like, you know, joining their railroad systems and their roads. And they've taken steps toward that. Uh, and they, you know, of course, they have a liaison office in, in Kaesong. It's a city just north of the DMC. And they've been talking about economic projects, about opening the Kaesong Industrial Zone again, which was closed. Uh, in the past conservative administration at a time of tension. I think without the U.S., they'd be moving rapidly in that area. But unfortunately, some of what they want to do violates U.N. sanctions. So, you know, South Korea has, has, has been forced to come to the U.S., to, to the White House, you know, basically hat in hand saying, can you please lift sanctions for some of these projects? So the U.S. has said no to some of them. And it said yes to a few others. So, you know, that's the sad part is that this this uh, standoff, this inability to to reach a compromise between the U.S. and the DPRK is preventing North and South from moving toward you know, reconciliation and uh, some kind of you know, much deeper economic and cultural cooperation. And, you know, unfortunately, in the coverage here in the, in the U.S., the media coverage, you know, the South Korea piece of this is, is completely ignored. I mean, it's always like Trump versus Kim, as if South Korea and its 50 million people just don't even count at all in the equation. I mean, that's kind of what I try to do in my writing is like, you know, remind people that South Korea is there. There's people there that want the peace process to succeed. You know, Moon Jae-in may be slipping in popularity for various reasons, you know, economic and other reasons. But you know, more than 50% of the people in South Korea want this peace initiative to succeed and want to end the state of war between North and South Korea. War has had just, you know, just a terrible, you know, uh, eroded so many aspects of life in, in both Koreas. So there's a fear of uh, war breaking out. There's this constant tension about that. These crises that happen every you know few months, it seems. I mean, it really has a psychological impact on, on people there, and uh, it's it's uh, over years. There's been you know so many problems with the U.S. role in South Korea that I've written about as well. You know, siding with the military when there was an uprising against martial law in 1980, and then you know helping the military put down a popular people's uprising, and then crimes against women in, in around U.S. bases, murders of young women in their rooms who were prostitutes by U.S. soldiers and, and, you know, getting off, not being tried in U.S. military courts and that kind of thing. These impacts of war that Americans just don't seem to ever take into account. That really is the, the, the sad part here. 
So it's not just between us and, and you know, good U.S. versus bad North Korea. It's like this is an issue for Koreans, ending the state of war that's existed and ending the division that's existed for 70 years. And, and finally, what would uh, a U.S. policy towards Korea look like, North Korea look like, uh, if a mainstream Democrat like Biden were president? Uh, how would it be different? How would it be similar? Probably worse than Trump's because the people advising, say, Biden uh, are the same people. Of, of, you know, of course, he was vice president under Obama. And you know, Obama's policy uh, and his policymakers, they were hoping that North Korea would you know, collapse and disappear. So they didn't even support, you know, direct negotiations. Their, their policy was you have to first give up all your weapons and then we'll talk, which is what Trump changed that whole dynamic. So with somebody like Biden, you know, I think, you know, the North Koreans were correct to you know, criticize him. I'm not saying I agree with all their wordy and all that, but I mean, it's the same old, same old, same old that, that the U.S. followed through, throughout the Cold War, which is confrontation and, you know, for a lot of mainstream Democrats, the key is the U.S. relationship with Japan and the alliance with Japan. And so, you know, Korea, South Korea is part of that. They don't want anything to damage this trilateral, massive, you know, military alliance that the U.S. has. And that, they, uh, that, that, of course, is all sort of aimed at China, right? So I think that's what we would get with Biden and, you know, a couple of the other. The only candidate that's really said anything that's different from that whole sort of democratic consensus is Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard. Most of the rest of them just have this traditional, we shouldn't be talking to this vicious dictator. And uh, they don't even, they don't even take into account what's going on with, with South Korea. It's that traditional Cold War stance for a lot of these people. Maybe um, a couple other candidates, you know, maybe are, are starting to take a deep look at this. But uh, with certainly with Biden, I would not be very hopeful on, on Korea policy. That was Tim Schrock. You can find his coverage of Korea on The Nation magazine's website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Harpooned by Wire from a few years ago. Next, India's election. The country held elections for the lower house of its parliament in seven phases that ran from April 11th through May 19th. The result, announced on May 23rd, was a decisive victory for a right-wing coalition led by Narendra Modi, the current prime minister and leader of the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP. 
The BJP is closely tied to a Hindu nationalist formation known as the RSS, founded in 1925 It's sometimes called the oldest fascist party in the world. Modi came into office in 2014 promising an economic renovation that would lift some 300 million Indians out of official poverty, roughly a quarter of the population. Other estimates are considerably higher, up to half the population. That poverty reduction hasn't happened despite GDP growth averaging 7% over the last decade. So why did Modi and his party do so well at the polls? To answer that, we've got Vijay Prashad. Vijay recently left academia to head up the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, which has offices in Buenos Aires, Delhi, Sao Paulo, and Johannesburg. Vijay Prashad. So it looks like the uh, the BJP won a pretty substantial uh, victory in India. Uh, is that appearance correct? Yes, of course. I mean, they, they were able to get a majority on their own, and they raised their vote share. It's incredible. So what do you attribute this to? I think this is, to some extent... Uh, a very curious factor in modern elections. I mean, firstly, one has to look at the obvious explanations that this is probably one of the most expensive elections we've seen in the world. Upwards of $7 billion was spent on this election. What? $7 billion? Yeah. Even adjusting for India's population, it's an enormous number. No, in the Trump election, uh, but admittedly now it's not just the presidential, but the congressional, everything added up together was six and a half billion. This is the declared money, okay? So we know that declared money is probably, there's a factor above it of undeclared uh, money. And India, undeclared money is going to be much greater. We don't know how much money was spent. And I can tell you, the small parties didn't spend that money. This was the BJP. They had huge rallies and so on. And then the media, you know, so... Conventional explanations help, and then there are some unconventional things. Like, for instance, the way Modi very cannily ran the campaign around his own personality. I think that's a key issue here. He smashed the opposition. Uh, He denigrated the leader of the opposition, and he basically suggested that uh, if not Modi, then who? And I think this was, for India, quite effective. Uh, it's not like, you know, let's not be too snotty about it. I mean, it's not like, you know, India has had perfectly functioning parliamentary democracy and suddenly Modi arrived and ruined it with a kind of presidential campaign. It's a very wrong attitude because after all, Jawaharlal Nehru also had a very grand reputation in India. In fact, he once wrote a note to himself saying, please make sure I don't become Caesar. You know, uh, that was a a private note that he had written. So India has this experience within parliamentary democracy of a sort of presidential prime minister. You know, uh, everybody knows it's going to be Nehru. Everybody knew it was going to be Indira Gandhi. And Modi has ascended to that level. But he played a very important campaign. I mean, he himself, because they knew their vulnerabilities, he didn't come out there and talk about you know, how he had made India great, uh, how the economy was flourishing. He didn't say any of that. Very clever. See, people don't appreciate that what Modi had done was he had pushed a series of social welfare schemes. You know, things like toilets in houses, electricity uh, connections and so on. And there's an important, you know, principle in economics that you have to consider. And this principle is not that I received the toilet or I received the electricity connection, but the principle is that 
my neighborhood got the connection, which means that I anticipate that I will also perhaps get it, you know, in time. In other words, the plausibility of getting the benefit has been demonstrated. So Modi very cleverly, they put electricity to villages, to certain neighborhoods. Now they didn't distribute it to every house, but this feeling has come, it's coming. And what they also did was they had literally hundreds of of call centers paid by the BJP. They had tens of thousands of WhatsApp groups and they directly targeted people who were beneficiaries of these social welfare schemes or who could be beneficiaries, would become beneficiaries. They directly targeted them with telephone calls, WhatsApp messages saying, you got this because of Modi, not the government, Modi. You know, you talk to people and they say, oh, I don't like the BJP. I don't like the RSS, which is the sort of brain trust of the BJP, the fascistic organization. Don't like them. But what do you like? Well, we like Modi. This was very effective. The echoes of other, let's call them right-wing governments. I find the term populist to be just the empty, useless spray, uh, word to use. These are right-wing governments. In other right-wing governments, this is a similar feature that the a leader is somehow portrayed as the anchor of your destiny. If you somehow pull this anchor out of the ground, you will once again be lost. You'll be carried in the winds of, of a very turbulent, difficult world. So by portraying Modi as the sort of anchor of your destiny, uh, people walked around saying, I like Modi, but I don't like his party. I don't like his government. It's almost as if our civilization requires psychoanalysis. You know, how can you like the leader, but you don't like the government? Well, but he did was able to translate that personal uh, prestige and, and affection into a substantial parliamentary majority. Oh, certainly. I mean, look, in North India, one has to be also clear that India has got a very d difficult electoral geography. Uh, the BJP made no gains in the south of India. In Tamil Nadu, they were totally unable to breach the state. When I'm talking about states like Tamil Nadu, these are the size of mid-sized European country. Same population as France. These are very large populations. No BJP, no Modi in Tamil Nadu, no Modi in Andhra Pradesh, no Modi in Kerala. So there were substantial parts of the country where the BJP was completely rejected. It was largely in the south of India. In the north of India, where some of these campaigns, for instance, around toilets and electricity connection and you know small... Uh, social welfare emoluments to help people in serious uh, distress. You know, all this had an impact because one of the things the BJP has mastered, and this is something we have to learn from, is that anything they do, they do a small thing. They build one toilet in a village. They'll come there and do so much propaganda. They'll make you feel like you have had a brick house built by the government, which has four toilets in it. Because they'll go to door to door, they'll say, look, Modi gave you that toilet. Modi did this, Modi did that. It's a very effective form of campaigning where you build up a sense among people that their aspirations, what they aspire to, those aspirations are not wrong. They will get met or they have been met. And they mix these two. They will get met and have been met. They mix these two. So people quite openly say that, look, I know I haven't got a toilet in my house, but there's one down the road, and this has improved our lives. This is despite the fact that that toilet might be unused. See, some journalists 
seeing the toilet built in a village unused said this is a bogus policy it's had no impact in the village now that's true it's had no impact in everyday life but it had an impact on the consciousness of people and so in this case to reverse the marxist uh, understanding where being shapes your consciousness the consciousness has shaped the being and the bjp has succeeded in doing that why not in the south though why didn't it work there it's an interesting history that india has in the south in the early part of independent india uh, there were very important movements against caste hierarchy and these movements such as the uh, anti brahmin movement in tamil nadu very much democratized the society and you know you, got, you have to understand that there are some wretchednesses in indian culture like caste you know very rigid social hierarchy uh, it's a wretched form of of social interaction where people have to sort of look up to people because of birth and so on caste in north india has a deep root and it's not been as severely challenged as in south india so the lack of this caste hierarchy in south india uh, and the fact that the non brahmin movements produced political parties means that the hegemony of those political parties like the dmk in tamil nadu uh, to some extent both the congress and the communists in kerala both of them in different ways at different tempos uh, are the heirs of the the reform movements in kerala Th- these political forces have become very difficult to uh, set aside uh, largely because they are the heirs of this uh, you know a democratizing struggle inside not politics you know but inside the culture they have democratized culture of tamil nadu the culture of kerala and so on in north india there has not been the same sort of force to democratize culture to democratize uh, society this has not happened uh, as much and the bjp in fact has made inroads uh, into sections of the oppressed caste communities Um, you know saying that look you forget that you're oppressed caste what you are in fact is a hindu uh, which is beyond caste and your problem is muslims i mean they've been able to make the cleavage uh, quite clear in north india between hindus and muslims a very dangerous kind of social solidarity game they are playing in other words let's set aside for now the fact that our social lives are quite wretched and torn apart by caste let's set that aside and let's gather us all together as hindus against muslims and this has been a winning formula for the bjp uh, since the 1990s okay so you anticipated my next question what about you know toilets are very nice but what about the darker side of the bjp the the hindu fascist agenda well that's uh, there i mean right after this election uh, you had two kinds of maybe three kinds of developments immediately on the ground you had incidents where Uh, the cadre of the fascistic rss and its associated bodies have been going up to individuals grabbing them and forcing them to say jai shri ram you know which means basically victory to the god ram it's a slogan of the far right and they force people to say that you don't say that they beat you up we've already had several incidents like that we've already had several incidents just in the few days after the election of muslims getting beaten in the streets this has become now a sort of normal thing it happened during modi's time it's happening now and thirdly uh, you have this very casual humiliation of people a doctor in bombay committed suicide one of many suicides over the last decade or so 
of people so humiliated by others because they make you know comments about their caste and so on that they take their life the, the iconic case was a student in hyderabad at hyderabad central university by the name of rohit vemula who committed suicide and wrote a very moving letter about his death so there is this terrible terrible social toxicity but you know dug one interesting thing is when you talk to people and say look you know there's this terrible violence on the streets and so on they say well it's not modi you see modi he is not doing this modi is not for this so then you'll ask them say why doesn't modi make a sharp statement to his followers to say this is not on this can should not happen you know this is not the way a society must function and they say well modi has said so i mean whether he said so or not is not the point you know let's not uh, get too citational in this and say well where did he say it and so on people believe that modi is above this and this is sort of the thuggery on the ground that has been there forever it's actually not true there's been a serious uptick of violence uh, not only against muslims against oppressed castes there's been an uptick of violence on colleges against left wing students and so on so you know yes this has been happening during modi's previous term it will happen in this term but there is a way in which there is an attitude that the czar is above everything you may remember that there was a book published years ago called revolt in the name of the czar and what that book was about was hundreds of rebellions uh, after the uh, freeing of the serfs in russia where serfs of post serfs would rebel and they'd go to the local lord and say the czar father the czar is against you you know he is we are with him against you and it's the same kind of feeling people say well modi is not uh, anti muslim you know that's not actually who he is he's for development and this is something that is there in india and as they say it's become normal this violence rather than something of great concern which has a direct line up to the prime minister's office i'm speaking with vijay prashad director of the tricontinental institute for social research and all that money that uh, bjp had where did that come from well this is interesting Uh, during this previous uh, parliament the government the bjp government changed the rules and they created something called electoral bonds now in the united states you have this phenomena of dark money where various people we speculate who they are uh, give huge amounts of money to political parties and so on and this is a new phenomena in the united states dark money and so on but eventually dark money is suppo- supposed to be reported that at some point in the cycle you're supposed to say who's giving you the money this electoral bond thing there's there is never accounting for who is giving the money so you'll never know who is supporting a political party it's totally shrouded now we assume that it's you know big business the crony capitalists who have been getting really good deals from uh, the modi government mr adani for instance a uh, transnational corporation built entirely out of his relationship personal relationship with narendra modi so gautam adani is one person the ambani family i mean here here was a huge scandal in the last year of the modi government about the procurement of fighter aircraft from the french company rafael and there's an indian arms manufacturing firm old indian arms manufacturing firm which is capable of building fighter aircrafts in fact modi had talked about so called make in india and so on but no uh, they got a deal with rafael whose indian partner was to be mr ambani who has never made a plane before 
uh, in his life, by which I mean not him, but any company that he's owned. And this scandal, when it came out, it was revealed that the Modi government had told Raphael, the French company, that they had to work with Ambani. In other words, this was a uh, you know no-bid uh, contract. Nobody else was going to bid on it. So people like Ambani, I'm sure, were quite grateful and you know gave very large amounts of money. BJP didn't by itself spend seven billion, but the vast bulk of the seven billion was certainly spent by the BJP. And you know the only people that can uh, conjure up that kind of money are these very large. Let's not call them capitalists. Even I mean these are basically mafia crony business businessmen. The Indian diaspora uh, business people abroad used to be an important support for uh, the BJP. Did they have a? Did they figure in this uh, this election? Well, you know, it's hard to say right now. Partly because we assume that th- there have been lots of uh, events in the diaspora, pro Modi events. Some of them in public, some private. That's you know certainly the case. And because of this new financing system of electoral bonds, it's quite likely. Uh, that uh, against Indian law, uh, which prohibits uh, foreign funding of Indian elections, uh, I think it's quite probable that money has come in. Uh, It does every year. Uh, Money comes from the diaspora uh, to help fund elections. I mean, look, uh, let's face it, Indian for years didn't have the cash, the kind of cash to support these magnificent, uh, you know, I mean, Indian elections, this one lasted seven weeks uh, and it's a huge festival. So it takes a lot of money to support these things. Certainly money came from the diaspora, and most of it went to the Modi camp. Now, the likes of the Financial Times have been, over the last several years, celebrating Modi bringing a neoliberal miracle to uh, India. What's been happening on on that front? See, India is a difficult place to bring neoliberalism. If you brought in full-scale privatization, if you, for instance, what they call labor market reform, if you... Uh, struck down any kind of restrictions on the exploitation of labor. If you brought in all, the whole slate of IMF uh, imagined policies into India, you have a serious problem. You know, half the population basically lives in poverty. And you have to have some form of social welfare or you're going to get immense amounts of uh, starvation deaths every year. And, you know, even for a right-wing government, this is not tolerable. You cannot have you know, millions of people starving to death every year. Yes, I know there's a natural rate of starvation that's allowed in India. It's not that people are not starving. We don't have a major project against hunger. You know, it's atrocious that today one in two Indians go to bed at night hungry. So what I'm trying to say is that the Manmohan Singh government, the Congress government before Modi, was also equally, in fact, perhaps as committed to all these neoliberal policies, particularly things like labor market reforms and so on. But they could not uh, do those and neither could they cut all the social welfare schemes. And that's the crucial part of it. You know, it's very hard for India to slash social welfare to near zero. You have to have schemes that are going to help a population where 93% of the workforce is in the informal sector. You're going to have to have some form of social welfare, or you're going to have total, uh, you know, unmitigated social disaster. So in that sense, Modi, yes, 
like Manmohan Singh before him, spoke a great deal about the importance of, you know, neoliberal reforms one, neoliberal reforms two, including so-called good governance, no corruption. You know, everybody knows what to say. But when it comes down to it, you cannot do two things. You cannot cut social welfare programs uh, to zero. It's impossible in India uh, without having a breakout of social chaos. And secondly, they were not able to push fully the uh, labor market reforms, which, which is exactly what the international institutions and um, others have been seeking in order to uh, make India much more important part of the global commodity chain. On paper or, you know, on silicon or screens or whatever you want to call it these days, India has been getting good GDP growth rates, some of the strongest in the world. Does that mean anything? Well, you know, we all know that GDP is a curious thing. I'm not sure really what it measures. But certainly uh, it is true that there are some sectors in India that are growing quite fast. I mean, there are a couple of factors for this. Uh, one factor is that for about, you know, almost 50 years, uh, India was what is used to be called a closed economy. So, you know, when I was a child growing up, uh, there were very few imports into the country and India exported, you know, some important things, but not a huge amount of stuff, by the way. It was largely an autarkic economy. Uh, there was measured growth, what was called mockingly the Hindu rate of growth, you know, 3%, which is, today is a very healthy rate of growth. But in those days, they said it's too low, needs to be higher and so on. So when the Indian economy so-called opened up after 1991, July of 1991, when India liberalized, you know, in India, the frame, the word is not neoliberalism, it's liberalization. Uh, we have our own term for it. So with liberalization, a couple of things opened up. One is there was enormous pent-up demand amongst the uh, growing middle class. In other words, there was a lot of things that the middle class wanted to consume, which it had not been able to consume. You know, trivial things perhaps like blue jeans, you know, you know from uh, the United States or actually, well, from Southeast Asia. Uh, a, a lot of goods, there was a demand for a lot of goods, consumer goods, consumer things like better refrigerators and so on. So for the last decade or so, a lot of Indian GDP growth has to do with consumption. Consumption, which is fueled by debt, uh, that's the great vulnerability that will open up because in that sense, there's not much difference between Indian consumers and American consumers. You know, they are not settling their books at the end of the year. Uh, they are also going into debt and we don't know the levels of debt in India as yet. But the other way in which growth has happened is that because there was so little export-oriented production in the country, uh, that those sectors certainly opened up, especially, of course, as is well known, in the uh, internet uh, sector, software development, and increasingly these niche areas, which are quite lucrative, uh, such as biomedical outsourcing and biochemical outsourcing. These are companies that do the research for big pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and so on, but they don't do the whole research line. They just do bits and pieces of it. It's, it's a form of sort of parceling out a research agenda. And so there are hundreds of places outside Bangalore that are basically biomedical uh, research outsourcing uh, shops, small little places, 20 workers, 50 workers, and so on. And these are PhDs, many of them from the United States, who are doing research for pharmaceutical companies, but of course not able to develop their own research agenda. 
there are these spaces where growth is taking place. I don't want to uh, you know, say there's no growth, GDP is an illusion. But of course, GDP is not a very robust indicator of how the whole economy is going. And finally, um, with a victory like this, with a popular mandate and a solid parliamentary majority, what can we expect from uh, Modi? It's very hard to say. You know, right after the election, he gave a speech where he talked about how he is a prime minister for everybody and how he will honor the Constitution. And, you know, when anybody says, I'm going to honor the Constitution, the first thing that a cynical person thinks is they're going to amend it. I mean, they're going to amend it and then they'll honor it. So uh, it's not clear exactly what they're going to do. They have something of a mandate, but they recognize that a large section of South India is not with them. They recognize that, yes, they've moved from 31% of those who voted, um, voting for them to 38%. I mean, in fact, the BJP coalition commands 45% of the voting public. But you see, once again, Doug, this is something we say, wow, that's a very large percentage. But 55% of people voted against you. So one hopes that there is some humility. The problem with the way our first-past-the-post system works and so on is that nobody cares uh, that 55% voted against you. You basically govern like you're the king of the country. And one hopes that a robust opposition will grow, uh, you know, not only inside the parliament but outside to make sure that some of these so-called reforms that the Modi agenda is about will not be allowed to go through. I mean, the most crucial thing, and this is why I've mentioned it several times, is the so-called labor market reforms. I mean, the right to strike is very much under threat in, in India. Uh, right to strike is fundamental. Uh, the question of uh, the so-called informal sector, as I said, 93% of Indian workers are in the informal sector. You know, rights and pensions for informal sector workers, all of this is absolutely essential. You know, unless there's an opposition that fights on these grounds, I think it's basically the end of India. That was Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental Think Tank. You can find them on the web at thetricontinental.org. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. The New York Times ran a pointless open letter from Robert De Niro to Robert Mueller, saying we need to hear more. The web version was accompanied by a pic of De Niro playing Mueller on Saturday Night Live. It all seemed like a symptom of the crisis of the liberal intelligentsia. I'm tired of this nonsense. We need a political movement to crush Trump. We shouldn't be looking to a prosecutor and cop who lied about Iraq to save us. Anyway, it all put me in mind of this, a much better use of Robert De Niro. Till next week, bye.